Well, good morning. That's a pleasant passage, isn't it? <laughs> you know, anybody who has um, who tells you that the Bible is boring has clearly never read First uh, and Second Samuel, or Tame. Right? It's uh, that's quite a passage. Well, we are actually at an inflection point in the life of David. Um, we are at, at the end of, of this time. He spent 10 or more years uh, running from Saul uh, and, and hiding and running to a new place and hiding. After the death of Saul and his two oldest sons, David was established as king at Hebron, but, but king over just Judah, over his own tribe. There's 12 tribes of, of Israel, and he is just his own tribe that followed him. The rest of Israel went and followed Saul's other son, Ishbosheth. Um, and and Ishbosheth, along with his army commander Abner, um, had been at war with with David for uh, about seven years. There's been seven years of this bitter civil war between Judah, led by David, and the rest of Israel, led by Abner and Ishbosheth. Chapter three, tells, verse one says, and there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So this is all pretty complicated history, and we don't want to do too much review every week. But um, but it's worth just briefly remembering that in last week's passage, Abner, who had been Ishbosheth's military commander and kind of really running, running things there for Israel, um, Abner was murdered by David's military commander, Joab. So as we start this chapter, Ishbosheth is just hearing about this event. So in verse 1 we read, When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. And all Israel was dismayed. So Ishbosheth hears about this, and he realizes Abner is the guy who has been kind of running things for me. He's the guy who has been running the military. He's really kind of the guy who's been running the kingdom. Without him, I'm in big trouble. I don't know that that I can that I have any hope in this war. But notice it's not just Ishbosheth. We read also that all of Israel was dismayed. So all of the people who had been following Ishbosheth, um, they're dismayed, they're worried by this, they're upset. Um, even though we have seen in the past that Ishbosheth was somewhat of a weak king, that, that Abner was, was leading him, Israel seems to be somewhat loyal to him still. The, the, his, the people who had been following seem to still be, um, I mean the reaction is not, all right, yay, we can follow David now, right? It, it's not the reaction we see, the reaction is that they're dismayed, they're upset that their leader has been killed. So then the next two chapters in this verse set up uh, these two important characters. We read, Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banah, and the name of the other was Reshab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beeroths fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there to this day. I know what you're thinking. You get, oh yeah, Beeroth, Beeroth. I always forget that that's counted part of Benjamin, right? You always, you're, you're thinking that as you read that. No, of course, that, of course that's not what you're thinking. This is, but, but to the people who read this, the ancient reader, that, that is what they would have thought. There's this obscure thing where for some reason, um, these people are not technically part of Benjamin, but they are part of Benjamin and there's some history there. Um, the important thing to know is that Saul was of the house of Benjamin. So Saul's sons would have been of the house of Benjamin. So these two men, Benah and Reshab, they're of the same tribe. And in those times, 
you know, you, you've got Israel, right? I mean, it, it, I guess you can almost think of it as like, like the nation and the state. You know, we're all Americans, but we're also Californians, and we're also Placer Cal- Countyans or Nevada Countyans or whatever. But, but it's more than that. It's family. It's the, they are part of the tribe of Benjamin. And so the, the point being, these are people we should, be, we should expect to be, to be loyal to Ishbosheth. They're, they're from his tribe. They're from his family. Um, and, and we also read that they are captains of raiding bands. So these aren't just random Benjamites. These are, these are guys who are leaders, leaders in the military. So finally, we take one more detour here, um, one more little setup piece in verse 4 before we get into the main heart of this gruesome story. We read, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So the news from Saul and Jonathan, of, of, from Jezreel, this is a few chapters ago. This is when Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. So this nurse who was watching um, Jonathan's son, this five-year-old son, hears this and she thinks, oh boy, we're in trouble. They're, they're, very often when something like that would happen, the next thing that would happen is you would go and you would want to kill off all the other heirs if you are a challenger to the throne. If you're, they might think, well, if David wants to take over the kingdom, he's going to try and kill off all of the other sons of Saul so that he can take over the kingdom. So this seems like this odd detail to, to put here, but I, but I think it has a purpose, this story. Um, before getting into the main account of what these men did, the author is trying to kind of set up for us the, the political picture of what's happening here in Israel. Um, we've already established there's this uncertainty. Ishbosheth is a weak king. His military leader has been killed. And so there's some uncertainty around what's going to happen. And I, we don't know if people know that Ishbosheth has lost his courage or if, if that news has spread, but if it has, they're probably dismayed about that. Well, just to add a little more uncertainty to, to that, um, Jonathan's Old, he was the oldest son of Saul, so he would have been next in line for the throne, but he was killed with his father. Well, he has, as it turns out, a son. It's kind of like a dun-dun-dun, a son, right? This is the first time we're hearing about Mephibosheth. He has this son. And now, when his father died, this, this kid was only five. He was, he was little as he was taken off by his nurse. But this civil war has been going on for, for seven years. So you can do the math and figure out that he's 13 years old now, right? I'm just teasing you. He's 12. I was just trying to see if you guys were any good at math. So he's not very old. He's only 12 years old, but that's old enough. There's, a, there's accounts later in, in First and Second Kings of, of people becoming king at 12, especially if you have an Abner, right? If you have a strong military leader um, who can come in and kind of run things for you, um, you, could be king at, you could be king at 12 potentially, but it's even more complicated than that because we're told this extra detail, which is that as this nanny, this nurse, grabbed him and was taking him away, well, I don't know if she was leading him real fast. I kind of avoid pictures of carrying him, but five-year-olds are kind of big to be carried, so maybe she was just pulling him really fast. Something happened, and Mephibosheth was injured badly. He broke his leg somehow or something because we are told that he is, he is unable to walk. He's lame in his feet. He's crippled. He's, he has something wrong where he is, he is not able to walk. So in the eyes of many, <clears throat> based on the culture of that time, that weakness would make him not a great candidate for king. Um, and, and lest you should think, well, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of 
just a bad cultural thing. I mean, you do have to think about the fact that one of the main things a king does, or one of his big duties, is leading the army into battle. And that's hard to do if you can't walk, right? Um, so there, there's some merit to it. But, but there's just more uncertainty here. You have Mephibosheth, who technically would be next in line for the throne, but he can't walk. You've got Ishbosheth, who has, has lost his nerve. Um, and, and, and likely the people are um, just very uncertain about what the future was going to be, what's going to come next. Um, and there was probably some disagreement. There was probably people who said, well, we should, we should grab Mephibosheth, and it doesn't matter, let's make him king. And there was probably people who said, well, we should, we should take Ishbosheth and, and find a new military leader for him. And maybe there were some people who said, you know what, it's just time we follow, finally followed David. Um, or they might have worried that if David does win, is he going to come punish us harshly for the fact that we've been fighting against him for the last seven years? So let me ask you, can you relate to this sort of um, unstable political environment, uncertainty, disagreement? I know it's hard for you to imagine an environment with that, that kind of uncertainty and disagreement, um, but, but, but we, in all seriousness, we, we, can, we can relate to that, right? And we haven't been fighting a seven-year bloody civil war where, where, where terrible things have been happening. Um, we do have a lot of uncertainty and division in our country, but there, it was probably worse there. Um, so in the midst of this uncertainty about the future, these two brothers, Bana and Rashab, decide to take matters into their own hands. So in verse 5 we read, Now the sons of Rimmon, the Berothite, Rashab and Bana, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rashab and Bana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. So this is our third death by stabbing in the stomach in, in, in three chapters, in case you're keeping track. It's a popular theme. This is a violent time in, in, in Israel's history, though, right? I mean, you've got civil war, so there, there's a lot there's a lot of violence happening, not just the war itself, but there are a lot of these political deaths happening. And these men walk into Ishbosheth's tent in the middle of the day while he's taking a nap. And you, would, you might think, in fact, some of the commentaries say, well, he shouldn't have been taking a nap in the middle of the day. It kind of shows that he's weak. But, I mean, I, like, I take naps in the middle of the day sometimes, so I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't relate to that too much. Um, and yeah, it's probably hot, right? It, it, it was actually fairly, it, I don't think it was that uncommon. And then some say, well, he should have had guards. But these guys are, been, I mean, we're already told these guys are of his tribe and they were military leaders. I don't think anybody would have thought anything about them walking into his tent to get wheat. I think it was probably, it wouldn't have raised any, if there had been guards there, they probably would have waved and said, go on in, because these are known men, they're known leaders. Um, Honestly, the commentaries bug me a little bit, because like, what, are you trying to say it's like his fault he got stabbed in the stomach? The guy was just taking a nap. But I don't know. That's... So at any rate, they kill him, they cut off their head, and they make their escape, and they travel all night long to get to David. So we read in, in verses 8 and 9 that they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to him, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Reshab and Banah his brother, the son of Rimmon the Berethite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, 
Behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news. I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. So they get to David. They're pretty excited. They've run all night with this head. Um, did he put it in a bag? I don't know. <laughs> so they run all night with this head. They get to David. They're like, check it out. We've got the, the, the head of your enemy. And it's interesting, if you really look hard at their statement, there's a lot wrapped up in what they say. First they say, we've killed Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. So they, it's reasonable to them. They present that Saul and Ishbosheth as David's enemies. Um, they've been at war for seven years, so that's a reasonable thing that they would think that. But it is interesting to note that as, as far as you, you can find, I don't know that we ever see David refer to Saul or Ishbosheth as his enemy. Um, he was in conflict with them, but I don't know that we ever see him actually call them his enemies. Second, they refer to David as my lord and king. They've been on the other side fighting against him for seven years, but they say my lord and king. So wrapped up in that, they're saying, by the way, I mean, clearly we've got the, the head of our leader. We're switching sides. Our loyalty is to you now. You are now our lord and king. They're declaring in that statement their loyalty to David. And third, they claim that what they have done is God acting through them. Did you notice that? They say, the Lord has avenged my Lord the King this day. So they're basically saying, hey, God used us to do something really good for you today. So I would suggest that what in, in what comes next, David rejects all three of those assumptions. He rejects all three of those premises. He rejects the idea of Ishbosheth as his enemy. He rejects their loyalty to them. Of, from them to him as their king, and he rejects the idea that the murder they carried out was, in fact, God at work through them. So you notice in verse 9, David says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. So he starts with God as well. He starts with God as well, and he says, yeah, God has, God has redeemed my life out of all kinds of adversities. God has saved me. God has protected me. He, he's affirming that, but I think in a sense he's saying, but it wasn't you two. It wasn't God acting through you two. And I think as we develop a little bit more here, you'll, you'll see that even more clearly. And he goes on to say, to, to, to remind them, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. So reminder, or if you weren't here, when Saul was killed in battle, um, when he died in battle, actually Saul was injured and he killed himself. David doesn't know that because he actually seems to still think that, that he was killed in battle. These men, who probably weren't even in the battle, came and cut off his head and brought it to David and said, check it out, we killed Saul for you. And that also did not end well for those men. Um, David, David said he, he considered them wicked and, and he, he killed them. And he, he's saying, I seized him and killed this man who, who came and gave me that news. Um, he says, and by the way, I feel the same way about what you've done here. I don't consider it good news. Also take note of how David describes Ishbosheth. He tells these men in verse 11. He says, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? So David refers to Ishbosheth not as my enemy, which is their premise. They say, we have killed your enemy. He says, you have killed a righteous man. 
So finally, David kind of implicitly rejects their premise that they're on his side because he, he kills them. He takes these men, he pronounces judgment, and he, he kills them, and he, he hangs up their hands and their feet um, as sort of a demonstration, a public demonstration that, that, what, that I do not agree with what this, these men have done. So he pronounces judgment on them, and he, he in doing so, says, yeah, you're, you're not on my side. I, I, don't, I don't affirm what you've done. So all three of their premises, that Saul and Ishbosheth are David's enemies, that they acted on God's behalf, and that they're on David's side, all three of these things, he rejects. So there's our story. There's kind of an overview of our story and our framework. What do we do with this? What do you do with a violent story like this, with a crazy story like that? That's, that's always the interesting question, isn't it? What do you do with this? Well, first I think it's worth asking. When we, when we see something in Scripture, when we see something in the Old Testament, a description of like, David did this, or Saul did this, or Samuel did this, or whatever, um, how do we know if we should use that as an example? I mean, do you just find the good guys and do what they do and then find the bad guys and, and not do what they do? Is, is, is that the, the key? You just say, well, you know, because who are the good guys? That, that's the hard part is in, in, I mean, is Samson a good guy? Kind of, right? But I, don't, don't just so I'm, don't do what Samson did. It, it, so even if you figure out who the good guys are, you can't always model yourselves after them. Um, Right now, in this time, David seems to be doing some pretty good things. But as we're going to get into further chapters, there's going to be some things he does that we certainly don't want to model ourselves after. And sometimes that's explicitly pointed out, like a prophet comes and says, hey David, what you did was wrong. And so it's real easy, right? If you're reading the Bible and you see that, you can be like, okay, well, I better not do that. But there's other more subtle cases, like I was thinking, not to spoil the whole book, but there's... There's some events that happens with his son Absalom where I think he exhibits some poor parenting. But it's not explicitly called out. You just kind of see the results of it. My point, I guess, what is your point, Chris? My point is that we, we, we can't just come to the Bible and, and say, be like this guy or girl, don't be like this guy or girl. Uh, there, there are places for that, right? Like, I mean, I want to be more like Daniel almost all the time. Daniel's pretty great. Or Ruth. There are certain Bible characters that you can say most of the time, it's a good idea to be like them. But more often the point of these stories is for us to see God at work in the lives of real people, to understand more about God's heart and about, and about wisdom, um, and, and, to learn, and, and, to be, and to learn how to be discerning about what is the right thing to do. So, with that in mind, let's, let's take a look at, at what David does and, and see what we can draw from it. Because this is definitely a time where David seems to be, it seems to be more of a time where a lot of what he is doing is, is a good model, and, 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 and there are many things we can learn from, from, from the wisdom that he exhibits. Um, however, that having been said, there's one more contradiction. There's one more thing that makes this hard to, to kind of pick apart, and that's that we have... We have two stories in chapter 3 and chapter 4 that are almost exactly the same and almost exactly opposite. So in this chapter, we see these two brothers come, right? And they've done this injustice. They've murdered this guy. And David says, murder's bad. I'm going to kill you. And, he, and he, he executes justice on them. So our takeaway might be, when we see injustice done, we should punish it. That's, that's, a, good, that's a good lesson, right? However, in the previous chapter, Joab 
does something really similar. He takes Abner off to the side, he stabs him in the stomach, and he kills him. And so if we read that, our takeaway might be, when we see injustice done, we should show mercy. You see, these stories are right next to each other. And in some ways, they're very parallel, even down to the stabbing in the stomach. And yet, David handles both of them differently, like right next to each other. And in both cases, it seems like the right decision. So if we look... Uh, in 2 Samuel 36, after David dealt with Joab, chapter, 2 Samuel 3, verse 36, after David did this with Joab, it says, and all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased the people. So the result of how David handled the situation with Joab in chapter 3, him showing mercy to him, there, um, he, he punished him, but not a lot, um, and it... He didn't even lose his job, right? He even kept his job, but somehow the way he handled that seems to have been wise. But then in our passage today, chapter 4, he does the opposite thing. And if you cheat a little bit and go into chapter 5, you're going to see this actually, this ends the civil war. This, this event is the end of this bloody seven-year civil war. The people seem to see that. The people of Israel seem to see how he handles it. And that seems to be the thing that brings him to his side and unites the country. So this opposite thing that he did also seems like it was a good decision. So how do we handle this kind of thing in Scripture? Because let's be honest, there's a lot of this kind of thing in Scripture, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of complicated Scriptures. And the fact is, if you're coming to the Bible for simple answers you have probably come to the wrong place. Now, don't understand me. The gospel, the gospel's simple, right? The gospel's incredibly simple. It's simple enough that it can be explained to a child, and a child can fully understand the gospel. It's simple enough that a thief hanging on a cross next to Jesus can have it explained to him in, like, two sentences and, and come to salvation. We're sinners separated from God, our only hope of salvation is to put our faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. I mean, that's it. That's the gospel. And it's very simple. But, while the gospel runs through every part of the Bible, while it's central to every message of the Bible, it's not the only truth found there. Because the Bible, I mean, you know this, but I'm reminding you, the Bible is full of all kinds of practical wisdom about how to live, how to stay close to God, how to be in peace and harmony with one another. And you might say, yeah, but the gospel, is, the gospel is the main thing that matters. It's the only thing that matters. And, and, and I think, you know, the Bible would disagree with you. I had to quote James here. This is for Ed, because Ed loves the book of James. I like it okay, too. But it's, James says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right? James says faith is important, but, but how we live is important, too. We read in Proverbs... He, he, he says, why did I write this book? The author of Proverbs. Why did I write this book? It's so that you can know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice and equity. To give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying. The words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And look at this. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we should be hungry for wisdom and instruction. And finally, even Jesus said to his disciples when he sent them out, he said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent 
as doves. We have to be both. We have to grasp the simplicity and innocence of the gospel, the simplicity of it, but we also have to be as wise as serpents. So, with that in mind, I think God put these two, I mean, maybe this is obvious, but I think these two, these two stories are next to the, each other in the Bible on purpose, right? I, I mean, they, they happened. They happened in order, so they're there next to each other because of that. And so the author wrote them that way. But it, it's more than that. I think God intentionally put these two things next to each other um, to make us have to think. So to make us understand that <clears throat> in life sometimes you can be faced with two very similar situations and the, the, the correct thing to do in those situations might not be the same. So in the case of Joab and Abner, David was weighing the strength of his own kingdom. He was weighing Joab's previous service to him. He had to find a way to express disapproval of what Joab had done without making the civil war worse. Like, I mean, you, you, you do it bad enough and maybe Joab's coalition forms a third coalition and you have a three-way civil war. There's, there's a lot wrapped up in there, right? And, and again, you know, we look at it, What he did, all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. So what he did worked. And in today's passage, David's faced with this different situation. If he had celebrated what these two Benjamites did, if he had celebrated the death of Ishbosheth, this civil war might have gone on for another five, ten, fifty. It could have gone on for many more years. And and as we know from our own civil war, civil wars are are, civil wars are they're. All wars are bad, but civil wars are incredibly devastating. I pulled this up that that in our own civil war, about 625,000 men died. That's more Americans than died in both world wars, Korea, and Vietnam combined. It amounted to 2% of the population at the time, which would be the equivalent to about 6 million Americans dying today. Civil wars are devastating. And I'm sure this civil war within, within Israel was devastating. So David takes this different action in this case with his eyes set on, on ending this civil war. And as we've said, it worked. This is, we're going to see a completely different book of 2 Samuel from here on out. Um, a lot of this war and strife is, is going to kind of be behind us. There will be still some war and some conflict, but the kingdom is united. David starts building his kingdom. This is a change, a change in the, not just in the book of Samuel, but in the history of Israel. So, we're probably not going to actually end a civil war today. I mean, you probably are not going to have to make a decision where you'll have to, you know, maybe end a civil war. So, I guess my question is, what can we take from this? And I, and I have three points um, that I, that I want to quickly go through. First of all, while we don't face political situations like this, we do have complicated situations in our life. And, and we need wisdom to determine what is right in complex situations. Um, sometimes we can be faced with two similar situations in our lives, and what worked last time is not going to work this time. Um, very often, there's not clear guidance on what, on what to do in a particular situation in Scripture. I mean, if, if your question is, should I steal? Well, probably that's pretty straightforward, right? Or, sh- or should I commit adultery? Well, yeah, that's pretty straightforward. But what about whether you should date a particular person, or whom you should marry, or whether or not you should take a certain job, or how to deal with something your child is going through, right? We have these complicated questions, and finding God's direction often requires many hours of prayer, of talking to other Christians and getting their input, 
of reading Scripture, really reading Scripture, really digging in and trying to discern God's heart. It's why we spend so much time studying the Bible. We need wisdom to determine what is right in complex situations, and wisdom doesn't come easily. Um, Second, we need wisdom to discern what is from God and what is not. Going back again, these guys say to David, the Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day. <clears throat> they believe, I think they believe that, that, that God acted through them. I don't think they're, I mean, let's take them at their word. I, I don't think they're necessarily being disingenuous. I think they really believe that they are acting on God's behalf. Um, oftentimes, people who tell us wrong things about God think that they're acting on God's behalf. Um, they probably believe it. But we have to do what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. But test everything and hold fast what is good. We have to evaluate what people say, what they teach. Evaluate against Scripture, against the wisdom of others. Um, I, I teach Sunday school sometimes, and I teach, I teach the kids in Awana, and I love to teach them about Acts 17.11, you know, with the Bereans where they're more righteous than others because they, they don't just listen to Paul. They go back and they... And they they look to see what, if what he said is true. And so this year in Awana, I would tell my after teaching my kids that, I'd say, you know, get out your Bibles. Why do we get out your Bibles? And they'd say, so we can be burritos. Yeah. So you guys need to be burritos too. We need to be burritos, Bereans. We need to test everything. Test everything. And hold fast only to what is good and what is true. There's a lot of information and, wisdom, and, and so-called wisdom out there. But not all of it is true. Finally, we need wisdom to understand who is and who is not our enemy. So we ref- these men come and they say to, to David, Ishbosheth is your enemy. And he kind of implicitly, re- well actually explicitly rejects that by, by, by saying, you killed an innocent man. Throughout his struggles with David, we see David do this with Saul. Throughout David's struggles with Saul, we see David do this, where oftentimes people, he has opportunities even to kill Saul several times, and David says, no, I won't do it. I won't do it. We also, I think, have so many temptations in our modern world to consider people our enemies who are not our enemies. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but the church, Christian values, they're under assault in a lot of ways in our country, right? Um, Godly living is, is under assault. Righteousness is under assault. It's in the news, it's in podcasts, it's in social media. There's this cultural war we're in the midst of. But the subtle thing, and the thing that the world tries to tell us, even many of the people who, who agree with our values, probably that's the most part who is trying to tell us that, people who agree with our values, is that the people who are opposed to us are our enemies. That we should hate them that we should look down on them and despise them. And of course, once you hate somebody, it's much easier to justify doing, doing wrong things to them. These guys, if Ishbosheth is your enemy, then it's probably okay to murder him, right? The answer to that is no, it's not right. But just in case that wasn't clear. So just as David rejected the notion that Saul and his sons were his enemies, I think we have to reject the idea that those in the world who are opposed to us are our enemies. They may hate us, but we cannot hate them. 
And the one who said this most, most brilliantly and most often was Martin Luther King. I love this quote. He said, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Isn't that a isn't that a beautiful quote? I don't think I had actually, I mean, I knew that the sentiment was there, but the way he expressed that, I just think, it's just, it's brilliant. Now, one objection to this might be, I mean, if you are living in this world, is then what then? Do we just sit back and do nothing? Do we just sit back and let, let all righteousness be overrun and take over? Should we not fight for what's right? That's not what David did. I mean, he's fought the war. He's fought the seven-year war. He didn't, like, when Ishbosheth came up, he didn't say, all right, Ishbosheth, you're, you're, you're good. Come take Judah too. I don't need to be the king. He fought the war. He fought, he, he fought for, for what he thought was right, for what he thought God wanted. He had an army and commanders, and they were fighting. But in the midst of that, even as he fought, and even in the previous decade of running from, from Saul, he refused to consider these men as his enemies. He refused to hate them. And of course, I would suggest this goes beyond politics or culture. I think this applies anywhere where there's conflict, whether it's within the church or outside of the church or personal relationships. I think the principle is the same, which is just because you disagree with someone, it doesn't make them your enemy. It doesn't even make them a bad person. It doesn't even make them stupid, right? Like, I mean, sometimes it's okay to... But, just because you disagree with somebody, you can disagree and that's okay. But there's a way to disagree that, that, that maintains an esteem for those people. And certainly the closer the relationship is, the more that's important, right? I mean, the more, of course, in personal relationships, it's incredibly important. Um, so we need wisdom to understand who is and who is not our enemy. And we need wisdom to, in fact, love our enemies, this is hard. Um, but we have to remember what the Bible tells us about where we've come from. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. We were enemies of God. We were in opposition to God. And God came we were just indifferent to him, right? We were enemies of him. And he came and he loved us enough to reconcile us to him through Jesus. This, is this the gospel, is at the core of how we do this because all of this is incredibly hard. Loving our enemies, having wisdom and discernment, it's incredibly hard. But the Bible tells us, going back to our, the proverb that we started, that we looked at earlier, Proverbs 1.7, it says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. For us to get wisdom, the starting point is God, the, the starting point is the gospel, and then there's hard work that comes after that, but the foundation is, is always God. It begins with understanding our, our need for Him to save us, and it, and it, it gets rebuilt and, 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 and encouraged over time by that same, by that same gospel reminder over and over. Let's pray together. Oh God, this is hard.
It is hard to love our enemies. It is hard to have discernment. It is hard to understand your ways. And yet, for you, God, it is easy. For you, these things are easy because you are God. And so we lean on you this morning, God. We lean on your understanding. We lean on your grace. We lean on on your great love for us. We ask that you would work in our lives and work in our hearts so that we could see these things. And we just ask that you would empower us to love the world around us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.